I'd like to thank the worship team, my family, my spiritual family, and uh, also my technical team to sort the computer out. I appreciate that. So it's great to to begin in worship, so, uh, to just lift your hearts to to what God is calling us to be and what God is calling us towards. So the message today is Advent. What is Advent? We hear that word a lot, and some of us may be thinking, oh, it's Advent, but we don't really know what Advent is. Advent is a word that means arrival, an appearing or coming into place. So Christians often talk about the first and the second Advent. So Advent is just the Christmas season, the incarnation. Actually, Advent is um, celebrated four weeks before Christmas, and it's the closest Sunday to November 30th. So in this case, Advent began on December 30th and concludes on December 24th, but it doesn't include the Christmas season, which is Christmas Day. So we're working our way through Advent, which is kind of like the countdown to Christmas. It's sort of like the build-up and saying, Christmas is coming, what you're waiting for, the coming of Jesus is coming. And now we can celebrate that and we can start preparing ourselves and getting ourselves ready. You think about Advent, and I want to talk today about the how and the why of Advent. The how is really described in Luke chapter 2 and in Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 2. And it describes the setting, the facts, you know, the, the Christmas story. And we know a lot about that. Um, we, um, we went to a, a, a little dramatization, cartoon, whatever you'd call it, with family, to a movie called The Star. And um, it was really well done, and was sort of characters describing... Uh, Mary and Joseph and, and their travel. And there was one point in, in the, the movie where um, they're going through hardship. And of course, Mary and Joseph are, they, they've left their community and they're, they're going towards Bethlehem. And I think Joseph says something that may, upsets Mary. And guys don't normally do that, but Joseph did in this case. And, 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 <laughs> And she was over crying on a rock. And Joseph went over and sort of, oh, I know, I've done it again kind of thing. And he sort of puts his arm around her and he says, you know, it's not that bad. But in real life, it was that bad, maybe worse. And she says, you know, it's really, really hard. And that to me touched me. I thought... Mary was explaining sort of what it was about. It was really hard. And you can picture the scene for the newlyweds. Extremely difficult situation. Newly married, just about to have a child, traveling from a community towards Bethlehem on a donkey. Um, I can't imagine being eight and a half or so months pregnant. Just doesn't fit well with me. But I don't, I mean, I could just imagine riding a donkey and what that might be like. You think you get there and you realize the political setting is terrible. You're under Roman occupation. The, the Jews are about ready to reject the Messiah, this, this baby, this, this 
Messiah you're carrying. And that make matters worse, Herod has sort of sent out this life-threatening threat upon your life. So not only is it challenging, it's, it's a difficult time, but it's life-threatening for the, for the newlywed couple. And so that's the setting they come into. But this morning, I didn't want to talk about the how so much, because we, we hear a lot about the how. I wanted to talk more so about why. The Advent story from a why perspective. Why did Jesus come is really the real question. What's the real reason for the season? Why did God bring Jesus into this situation, into this difficult situation amongst all these things you consider to be impossible? It is the age-old question, why did Jesus come? And that's really the focus for this morning. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, hundreds of years before, he prophesies. And he says this, he says, And you will be called priests of the Lord, and you will be named ministers of our God, and you will feed on the wealth of nations and their riches, and you will boast. So the question here is, who is you? Isaiah is prophesying about a time in the future, and you will be called priests of the Lord. Under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament economy, it was really clear as to what the people's place and role was. The context is like this, and this is what the transition setting looks like for Jesus coming in to this time when He would be born, when He would bring about a change. The Old Covenant, God ordained the priests of Israel. So God had ordained the priests from back in the Levitical time, which goes back millennia, thousands of years, it had been like that. To stand between Him and the people. So if if, if God is sort of there, and if I'm a royal priest, then... You caught that, right? (laughs) And you're the people, then... He stands between him and the people, and they, the priests, brought God's word to you. And you brought your need and your sinfulness to the priest, and I in turn offered it back. So I was like this this intercessor. I was right in the focus. I was right in the middle of things. I was, in a sense, the key person. Without me, God didn't really commune. So I was the the conduit, you might say, that the people had between God and the people and the people back to God again. And so that was the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant had been around forever. But then came Jesus. Then came Jesus on the scene. And things changed. Things were about to change. He was about to offer in this. This new covenant, not the old covenant anymore, but the new covenant. And the new covenant looked more like this, where old believers and, or all believers and priests of the Lord, or all believers were priests of the Lord. So I'm not the only priest. We're all priests before God. Hearing and reading God's word 
ourselves and seeking to understand it. Not having an intercessor saying, this is what it means. Each person taking up the responsibility of reading the Word and understanding what the Word had said. And confessing their sins directly to God. And ministering to others. Change. Huge, huge, huge change from the old covenant. And when you look at this model, this new covenant, who don't you see in that? The priest. All of a sudden, the priest, it's like the priests are thinking, oh no, the new covenant. I'm getting my layoff notice. All of a sudden, you don't need me anymore. Where am I in this? I'm amongst the people. And the temple, there's really, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, the temple's not needed. So everything that they felt was their right and their responsibility and their privilege and their position, all of a sudden was being pushed aside and now the new covenant was being ushered in. And Jesus was the deliverer of the new covenant. He was the person who was bringing this in. Change. God's way of bringing about things that He wants for our life is change. And sometimes, well, think of it. Do you like change? Do you like it when things change? Well, things were about to change for my PowerPoint here. I was about, not about to have one, and I wasn't too, yay, you know, <laughs> about that. I thought I was getting a little bit stressed for a moment. You know, you didn't see it, but I was. <laughs> but change, God brings about change, and He brought about change in a huge way here. And we think personally, do we like change? If God's bringing change into our life for His glory, and we know that it's for God's purposes, do we embrace it? Or do we think, ah, oh, you know, that's really not for me right now. It's not the best time. Maybe some other time. But He does bring about change. And He's constantly doing that in our life. And He did that to the priests. So if you can imagine yourself in their circumstance, what that must have been like to all of a sudden realize our time has come. He's bringing in something different. And we're no longer the focal point. Important that they embrace that. So why did Jesus come? He came to bring in a new covenant. He bring, came in to bring in change. So the, the message today is really looking at why the first advent is not only important for the people that went through this and the second generation, the tenth generation, up to the 21st generation of which we live. It's important to us. The advent just as important it is to them. And I want to look at why that's just as important to us as it is to them as well. If we look at a verse in, in Mark, Jesus proclaims the time has come. No longer in the future. The time is here right now. So the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. 
So the message that Jesus brought was repent and believe. And the word repent means, means turning. So if this is sinful lifestyle and this is an old fleshly way of living, I turn to God and I choose to live my life for God. That's repenting. I've turned from this way to that. And God's calling us and Jesus says, I want you to repent to start with. I want you to recognize what sinful lifestyle looks like and the fact that it doesn't please me. And I want you to turn and to start coming to me and looking to me and believe. That was his key message. Repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here right now. So the short answer to why Jesus came, he said, I've come to preach the good news. The good news is the same as the gospel. It's the same thing. Gospel good news. So he says, I've come to preach the gospel. When you think of Jesus, and you think of his name and his identity, do you think of him as preaching the gospel? Or is gospel preaching usually the responsibility of the disciples, the apostles, perhaps the evangelists. But maybe today we might think of Jesus differently as a gospel preacher. Because he said, I come to preach the good news for you. And in so doing, he preaches the gospel in this way. He says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. If we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, in that little section, we read that Paul preached the gospel in terms of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. So on one side we have Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is near. I've come to, to preach to you, repent and believe. And, and Paul says, the death, the burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And on first consideration, you might say, wait a minute, it sounds like two different Gospels. It sounds like two different messages. Is that right? Kingdom of God is near, death, burial, and resurrection. How can we have a Gospel of Jesus and a Gospel of Paul? Well, we have some time this morning, approximately 22 minutes or so, to look at that. So I'd like to look at that for a few minutes. Let's look first at the gospel of what Jesus proclaimed and then decide whether they're different. We know intrinsically the gospel is not different. But if someone were to say to you, well, Jesus said, repent and believe the the good news, and Paul said the death, burial, resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, it's different. Explain to me why it's different. And you might say, ah, yeah, okay, I don't know. I knew that one. Um, hmm. Wally brought this out just recently, and he said, in order to understand what the Bible is saying, search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. Don't search the Internet. Or don't search your, you know, your, your, your book of commentary. Search the Scriptures. So that's what we will do. We'll search the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures says about this apparent um, difference. 
Luke 4, verse 43, gives us a sense of urgency that Jesus comes with. And he says this, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that was why I was sent. I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's why, and I must do it. Not only the kingdom of God is the theme of Jesus' teaching, it's that when he came, the kingdom of God had arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Today the scriptures have been fulfilled. The ministry of Jesus by proclaiming the kingdom of God was the same as saying, He's preaching the gospel. Remember the thief on the cross says to believe him as the king of the king of the kingdom of God was to inherit eternal life. The thief on the cross was being crucified beside Jesus. And he said to Jesus, he said, "Remember me when you come in your kingdom." So the the thief was saying to Jesus, "I I know who you are," because he said to the other thieves, on the cross, you can, I can't imagine a conversation that's occurring on the cross while these guys are being crucified. Because the, as we, we, we understand, the pain and the, just what's happened to your body is so excruciating to have a conversation. But one of the persons who's being crucified says to the other, he says, we know why we're here. Because we broke the law. We know why we're here. So the Roman law says this, so we're being punished rightfully. But he said, this guy, Jesus, he said, he didn't do anything wrong. He did nothing wrong. And Jesus hears the dialogue. And in so Jesus says this, he says, I tell you the truth to the person who said, the other guy, today you will be with me in paradise. Because he's describing Jesus as being the king of the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom had arrived already. And that leads us to something that we often, in, 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 in preaching, the, we, we, we assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. And when we say the kingdom of God, what's the kingdom of God? Well, you say, well, the kingdom of God is this. The, the Jews couldn't say God, so they said, kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. Is that helpful? And you say, how is it preaching the gospel? The kingdom of heaven is, in fact, preaching the gospel. In general, the kingdom of heaven refers to God's rule on earth. Is that helpful? And when you start something, explaining something, you say, in general... Usually you give like this really high-level thing, and that doesn't help very much either. It's what Jesus came to announce, but the kingdom of heaven, we think about it this way. Those who belong to the kingdom of heaven have a living heart that is committed to the values that are important to God. Within our heart, we believe and we live for the things 
that are important to God. God's values are in our heart, and those are the things that are most important to us. And so, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is the work of the Holy Spirit. We know in, in Matthew chapter 5, is the be, be attitudes. The be attitudes. So, it's be attitudes. Be like these attitudes. And in chapter 5, verse 3, it starts out, in verse 3 it says, the kingdom of God is like this. Then it goes down to verse 10. It says, the kingdom of God is like that. And everything in between the bookends of the kingdom of God is describing what it is to have a heart that is committed to the things that God thinks are most important to Him. And so we know that we're living for God because we have that heart for Him. So that is the kingdom of God. It is a, not a physical kingdom or a military or political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And we talk so much about what resides in our heart. That's where the kingdom resides, in our heart. Living, breathing, communing, speaking in our heart. The kingdom of God. The person of Jesus Christ in our heart. The kingdom of God. So let's get back to Advent. During the Christmas season, there are so many familiar passages that we read about Christmas. And one of them is from Isaiah chapter 9. Familiar, it's in verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We say, yes, amen. Very familiar, revealing passage. But that's not the one I want to look at. I want to look at the next one after that. In verse 7, he says, However, I would like to look at these things. Of the increase of his government, and the peace will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with the justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And so Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus' kingdom. Long, hundreds of years before Jesus was even ushered into the scene, he's talking about the king. And this is the reign and the rule of the king that is coming. Jesus, at his coming, was announcing that he is king. He was, in fact, the son of David. He was the rightful heir to the throne. He was the legitimate He was the person who would reign over God's people. And on his arrival as king, he met with fierce opposition. You can imagine the priests, for one thing, saying, you know, we we don't want this man ruling over us. We don't want this guy. We We don't want a king. Pilate thought, what we need now is another king. You know, I have enough problems in Jerusalem trying to keep the Romans and keep this all under control. We don't need somebody else. Nobody wanted the new king. The Pharisees themselves, they challenged Jesus one day as he was casting out demons. And he accused them, he says, by your league or by your association with Belzebub. That's an interesting name, Belzebub. He was a major demon associated with Baal. And, and so he says, 
is by your association with Belzebub that you are casting out these demons. And Jesus responds and he says in this way, why would Belzebub destroy himself? Why would he do that? So he says to the, the Pharisees, he says, help me understand this. Why would our own army destroy our own soldiers? Does that make sense to you? And I, I think the Pharisees ha- had this agreement with, with each other. You know, they are always in, interacting with Jesus. And they'd say something, and Jesus would say something back. I think they had a little meeting, and they said, okay, we're going to accuse Jesus of this, but if he says something, if he challenges you with a question, don't say anything. You're only going to look stupid with your answer, so don't say anything. So they just stood back and didn't say anything. So they looked kind of like, you know, and, and Jesus said, does that make sense to you? And he said, nothing. Well, he says, in fact, this is how it is. Jesus claimed to be himself operated by the power of God. He had in front, in fact, confronted the powers of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. As Wally explained a week or two ago, the man of lawlessness, the power of darkness, the prince of darkness, the system that opposes God in the world and overpowered it. In Jesus' teaching, there is this indispensable connection between establishing of his kingly rule and the defeat of Satan, which is brought down by his death and his resurrection. Rather than being able to do things by Satan's powers, Jesus is declaring the exact opposite. He's saying, in fact, I'm storming the gates of Satan and destroying them. I'm destroying them. He was challenging the rulers of darkness that he might defeat them forever and be the undefeated king. If you defeat your greatest enemy, who will stand up before you? Who's left? Like David defeated Goliath. And once he defeated Goliath, David could say, well, who else wants to come? The Philistines were running too fast to even hear what he had to say. They were gone. There was no one left. That greatest enemy was defeated. And so he stood there in victory. The defeat of Satan, the prince of this world, the ruler of darkness, whatever you want to call it, and the death of Jesus are closely connected. Jesus, knowing that his kingly rule would be established by his death and his resurrection, Because it was a ransom for many. He was paying a ransom for many, whereby our sins could be forgiven. And that's the connection with Paul's gospel. He was paying the ransom for many that our sins might be forgiven. These two aspects must not be separated as if one could take place without the other. The death of Jesus is a sin-bearing death. He bore our sin on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In doing so, He has set us free 
from the slavery and yet at the same time defeated Satan and freeing us, he's defeated his greatest enemy and ours. So it's kind of like a boxing match. You have an uppercut. And in doing that, he takes away the sin of the world. And around the side, you have this. He defeats Satan and the freedom we have from slavery of sin. And so on the cross, this is what Jesus did for us. As a rightful king, defeating the power of sin, defeating Satan, and making him basically harmless. He has overpowered him. He is the undisputed Savior, Lord, and King. When he defeated Satan, there is no one left to, ch- to challenge his authority. It says in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me, the rightful king. And so the connection between Jesus and the defeat of Satan is even more clearly described by Paul. He says this in Colossians 2, chapter 15. He pictures all our debts being nailed to the cross of Christ and goes on to explain having disarmed the powers, having disarmed. So there's no power. There's there's nothing to it. What what, What was once there that actually had some some ability to be able to inflict any kind of pain or any kind of consequence is gone. It's been disarmed. It's like my computer, when you pull the plug, you don't see any PowerPoint because it's disarmed. It's gone. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing them over the cross. It's like this. It's a more of a graphic illustration, but in Roman, when Roman generals came home to Rome in triumph, they would ride their chariots into the streets. And chained to the chariot were the rulers of the cities and the countries they'd conquered. So it might have looked a little bit like this. Can you see that? So you have the, the mighty general or whoever the military person's chariot, and he's riding into Rome victoriously, coming back from a campaign of war and conflicts with different countries and cities. And you think about these guys. And even if you're a little kid, as as the chariot goes by, you get a real vivid picture of what happens to people when they're conquered by Rome. They're chained to the chariot and they're taken as slaves. And they have absolute no power left over. The little kid might say, so great is the might of Rome that we turn our rulers, our enemies into slaves. And that is a mark of utter supremacy. And so 
Paul is using the same illustration of what Jesus did to the power of sin and the slavery of sin and the power of Satan on the cross. That he took those things and made that a public spectacle. And that it was defeated. And that it was disarmed. There is nothing left of the power of that. And so we come into a place where we have our sins forgiven and Jesus has given us new life and he's given us new, new covenant, new relationship with him. He's disarmed and powered the powers and the authorities and through his death and resurrection, he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross and establishing his kingdom that he is the king. So we look at this and we say, is there a difference between the gospel of Paul and the gospel of Jesus? No, there's not. It's all part of the same gospel. We've talked a lot about the first advent, which is the first coming of Jesus, which is coming at Christmas time and celebrating Christmas. We now wait patiently for his second advent. And so the first advent can be summarized this way. Jesus says, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus died and was gloriously resurrected. He's defeated on our behalf both Satan and the power and the slavery of sin, that our sins might be forgiven. Victory is his. All authority is his. He is our risen Savior, Lord, and King. And so as we conclude today, I'd like to conclude with this thought. As we, we complete Advent season and we go into the Christmas season, that Advent brings about memories of Jesus and why He came and what He's done for us. And it is our privilege to repent and believe. And it's not that we repent and believe once. Because as, as we continue to do things that displease God, we come back and we confess and He receives us and, and, and He forgives us. And so that is something that we continually do before Him. And believe the cherished gospel because it is a gospel that has probably the most important message that we'll ever, ever hear in our lives. It's cherished. It's, 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 it's so precious. And we'll do that by respecting and honoring and obeying our Savior, Lord, Jesus, and King, until the time of His second advent. I think the worship team has one more song for us. Thank you. I'll just close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that the King of Heaven does come down and has come down in the person of Jesus in the first advent and come down to, to take our place, Lord, upon a cross and pay our sin and our debt for us. And, and we're, we're internally grateful. And we're thankful, Lord, that You do take up residence within our heart and You live within us and the Kingdom of God is within us. The Kingdom of Heaven resides within our heart, Lord. And we do thank you for that close relationship that we have with the God of heaven that he has come down and he has taken his place in the kingdom within us. 
And so we just worship you, Jesus. We, we, we give the remainder of Advent to you. We pray that as we would just part today and meet over lunch and the balance of the day, may our hearts rejoice on the message of what we've received through the coming of Jesus. And may the rest of the season just reflect our gratitude to, to you and to all that you represent to us. So we just praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.